Um, hello and welcome um, everyone. My name is Alina Rocha Menocal and I am a Principal Research Fellow in Politics and Governance at ODI and also Acting Program Director for the ODI-led Learning, Evidence and Advocacy Partnership, or LEAP. I'm delighted to host the last webinar of the series we launched at the start of this month to showcase findings and lessons from the UK-funded Partnership to Engage, Reform and Learn, or PERL. I believe that we have approximately 250 people signed up for the session today. And I want to thank in particular Pearl and FTDO colleagues who are able to attend and be with us in this discussion. Let me start by saying a little bit about Pearl for those of you who may not be familiar with the program. Pearl was established in 2016 as an innovative governance program that builds on almost two decades of DFID and now FCDO investment in Nigeria and lessons learned. The program brings together governments and citizens groups at both the federal and the state level to work collectively to address governance challenges associated with the delivery of basic services. And it is also intended to be politically smart, adaptive and anchored in learning. PERL consists of three pillars working as one program. One of the pillars is called Accountable, Responsive, and Capable Government, or ARC, which is a supply side of governance, and it is led by DAI. A second pillar is called Engage Citizens, or ECP, which is led by Palladium and is the demand side of governance. And the third pillar is LEAP, which is led by ODI. LEAP, which comes to an end at this, uh, which comes to an end um, on the 31st of October, has led on learning across Pearl. This webinar series and related activities that we have organized are intended to share insights and lessons from the research that LEAP has undertaken over the past two years on Pearl and predecessor programs. The research that we have undertaken contributes to many pressing debates in the field. And we also hope that it will help to inform ongoing and future governance programming within SEDO and beyond. For those of you who were able to join us two weeks ago, you will remember that that was our first webinar where we were discussing how governance reform happens and how FCDO supported programs have contributed to such change. At that meeting or at that webinar, we also launched our flagship publication on the impact of 20 years of FCDO investment in Nigeria, which is available online. The second, uh, the second webinar, which was last week, focused on pearl design and ways of working and highlighted lessons for how to embed thinking and working politically more effectively in programmatic practice. And this brings us to our third and last sem uh, seminar today, which seeks to complete the puzzle by exploring whether and how governance can improve service delivery, looking at the work Pearl has undertaken at the state level in health and education in particular. I am very excited with the lineup that we have today to help us address this question. So let me briefly introduce all of the people that you will see on your screen so that you know who they are. And then I will explain to you a little bit about how we will proceed. We have Gareth Williams, who has led the research work stream within LEAP uh, for several years and also has been involved in a lot of the studies that we have carried out. And he also is the director or a director at the policy practice. 
We then also have Mohamed Sami Abdullahi, who until about two weeks ago, I think that's correct, was chief of staff to the governor of Kaduna State. And since then has been planning and budget commissioner of the state. And he also has considerable experience in development policy formulation, public finance and project implementation. Then we have Joe Wales, who is a dear former colleague of ours in the politics and governance program at ODI, and is now an education advisor in FCDO, in the FCDO education research team. And last but not least, we also have Miani Bukar, who is LEAP's national team leader and has been involved with LEAP for, from the very start in different roles. So let me explain to you a little bit about how we will proceed. Um, I will start by asking both Gareth and Mohammed a few questions uh, on the links between governance reforms and improvements in service delivery. And then I will bring Joe into the conversation to discuss how development programs like Pearl can support governance more effectively to contribute to developmental outcomes. I will invite Miani to come in towards the end to provide a wider set of, ref of closing reflections on why the work of a program like Pearl is important in the Nigerian context and what challenges lie ahead. Before I turn to Gareth, I also want to say that we very much welcome your comments and questions, and we will have time to go over some of those during our session today. The first opportunity will be after I have asked Gareth and Mohammed a few questions about the linkages between governance and service delivery, and then there will be a wider opportunity to interact with, um, with Joe as well. So please do use the Q&A box at the bottom of your screens to raise questions that you may have for the panel and also to share any reflections that come to mind. We, we hope to keep track of those as well. Um, and we will ourselves use the chat response, uh, the, the chat box to respond to any comments that you may have or questions that you may raise unless we can address them um, live in the panel. And also if you feel comfortable doing so, it will be really helpful if you can tell us who you are and what your role is when you ask a question. Okay, without further ado, let me turn to, um, to Gareth as, as the first person that I will put in the hot seat as it were. Um, Gareth, uh, you have been working on, on LEAP uh, research for some time, uh, very closely examining what the program has achieved in terms of both governance uh, reform and improved health and education outcomes um, on the other. So um, I, I was wondering if you could share with us what improvements um, um, you have been able to, to um, detect from the research that you and other colleagues have done on both the governance side of things and the health and education side of things, looking in particular at the four states uh, that LEAP um, research has focused on in Pearl. Thank you. Thanks, Alina. I'm delighted to be here. Let me um, share a few slides because most of the evidence on this comes from the, uh, the flagship survey um, that was presented uh, to this forum um, two weeks ago. Um, yeah, this is, this is the report that was uh, shared with you two weeks ago. Um, we'll be putting in the chat uh, all of the, the hyperlinks where you can uh, download the documents that I'll be uh, referring to. Um, so for those of you that weren't, weren't at the session um, two weeks ago, just very briefly, this, this research looks at the impact of 20 years of governance programming uh, in Nigeria. Um, and it looks in particular at uh, four states, Kaduna, Kano, Jigawa, and Yobe. Um, and yeah, the, 
collective influence of a, of a series of uh, governance programs uh, funded by DFID, um, now the FCDO. And it looked um, at a huge range of indicators, uh, both at the level of core governance, uh, but also in terms of uh, health and education outcomes. So it gives us uh, a really interesting long-term data set uh, where we can look at trends uh, over time. And the general finding was from the report that um, both core governance systems and service delivery outcomes had improved uh, markedly across the four states, uh, but there were important differences between them. And I think by analyzing those differences, we can start to understand a bit more about how core governance reforms impact on uh, service delivery outcomes. So by core governance, uh, we mean the process is at the center of government, uh, concerned with budgeting, planning, policy making, human resource management, as well as uh, changes in the arrangement of democratic oversight processes and accountability mechanisms provided by the State House of Assembly, civil society and the media. And at this level, um, so this is just a summary of uh, the main indicators that we collected through this report. Uh, but just to highlight a few of the, of the key results. At this level, we found that particularly in terms of uh, empowerment and accountability processes, there had been um, improvements in all four states. So these indicators measure the ability of citizens to participate in budget processes, the transparency of the budget, um, their ability to monitor the implementation of budgets, uh, as well as uh, how the State House of Assembly and citizens and the media hold government to account for their performance. In all the states, budgets became more transparent and the State House of Assembly played a more effective role uh, in scrutinizing budget proposals. We also looked at indicators of public financial management and these are generally improved, but more variability between the states. Uh, in Jagawa and Kaduna, in particular, we noticed improvements in the quality of state level policy planning and uh, budgeting processes. I'm sure the commissioner will be telling us more about this in a moment uh, in Kaduna. Budget performance, um, which is the uh, extent to which state governments actually execute the budget as planned, was very variable in states, between the states. Jigawa performed consistently well over 20 years. Um, Yobe mixed performance, but it improved since 2015. Kaduna also quite mixed, but we've seen really over the last couple of years a marked improvement in Kaduna as well. Uh, but in Kano, a worsening performance. And I think this indicates the often observed, an often observed weakness in government systems in Nigeria and how difficult it is to address this problem of, of budget performance. When we looked at the health and education sectors, um, we found that all four states had increased the share of the budget spent on health and education. And this was really quite a dramatic result, uh, considering that over the time period we're looking at, uh, resources available to the states from the Federation account have been increasingly constrained. So in spite of declining revenues, states were still spending a bigger share of their budgets on health and education, a very important uh, and dramatic result. Jigawa and Kaduna um, have achieved the highest share of actual spending um, in the health sector. In the education sector, Jigawa and Kano spent the highest share, although in Kano, um, 
spending per capita was much less than in the other states. So overall, we find that Jigawa performed best in terms of how it allocated uh, additional resources to the health and education sectors. Kaduna has also done well, particularly in the last few years. When we looked at the actual outcomes in the uh, health and education sectors, um, and here we were looking at indicators of uh, maternal and newborn child health, um, immunization rates, um, gross enrollment in schools, uh, primary school completion, the gender parity index for school enrollment. We found that pretty much across the board, um, there were improvements over the 20 years, which was uh, a most encouraging um, result. Uh, we didn't find all that much difference between the states in terms of the, these trends and the final outcome indicators. And I think the interesting point here is illustrated by Carno is that you can still get improvements in health and education outcomes, even in the context of uh, weaker governance that I, I described. Um, however, our hypothesis is that in this case, the improvements in health and education that we've seen have been driven more by direct service provision by donor programs who are providing these services directly uh, rather than through government systems. And we'd suggest that um, the improvements in service delivery of the type we've observed in Kaduna and Chigawa that seem to be much more driven by core governance uh, improvements will be longer lived and more sustainable. So that's just a quick summary of uh, the results that we've seen in terms of core governance and uh, service delivery outcomes across these four states. You can find out much more, look at the data uh, in detail in, in the report for which the link is available. Thank you so much, Gareth, for, for that very good picture, um, which is actually quite complex and diverse, right? So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the causal mechanisms that may be um, out there between actual improvements in different um, elements of governance and uh, improved outcomes in health and education. Are there some trends that you see? Are there some relevant causal mechanisms? Thank, thanks, Alina. And this is the hard part and the, the million dollar question that we're trying to uh, address today. What, what actually is the causal link between core governance uh, reforms and uh, the service delivery outcomes? We, we've observed a strong association or a correlation, but the research was also trying to say um, something about what these causal pathways are. Um, and we used to do, to do this, we used a realist synthesis approach um, combined with uh, process tracing to look at um, what actually happened, what sequence of events happened and how we could trace that through from uh, core governance reforms to, to sectoral outcomes. We also used this model of the um, service delivery chain um, which is explained in, in the report, which um, basically just shows how um, improvements in core governance, starting with how national resources are allocated and prioritized and put into budget systems, uh, how that then feeds through uh, into sectoral governance and finally to uh, sectoral uh, outcomes in terms of improved health and education. Uh, and we were what we were particularly interested in is the, the linkages in these in these chains. So how changes in public financial management uh, actually feed through into more resources, reaching the sectors uh, and better services at the, at the front line, or how mechanisms of empowerment and accountability ensure that those um, resources are better used in line with citizens' priorities. 
Um, and um, I think where one of the really key findings, um, unsurprisingly, is that uh, context really matters and that these the service delivery chain works in very different ways depending on the political economy context of the state. I think the standout finding was that um, in Jigawa and Kaduna since 2015, uh, governors have enjoyed uh, more political space to pursue developmental policies, including core governance reforms and service delivery improvements. Um, the patronage pressures, um, it'll be interesting to hear the commissioner's view on this, but patronage pressures, according to our analysis, seem, seem to be weaker in these two contexts. Governors weren't so much constantly under pressure to meet the demands of particular interest groups in order to shore up their position and support. And this gave them more space, um, we argue in the report, to uh, deliver on more developmental policies and better services. So in these more conducive contexts, we identified um, three main mechanisms by which governance reforms contributed to core governance, uh, by which core governance reforms have contributed to service delivery improvements. Uh, the first and probably the most important mechanism relates to systems for empowerment and accountability. Our research suggests that increased citizen participation in budgets through formal budget consultations or grassroots processes like community charters of demand have actually influenced budgetary priorities. Uh, we can track that through process tracing uh, and is likely to be part of the explanation for increased spending on health and education. And this has enabled citizens to voice their demand for service delivery improvements and provided a mechanism by which state governments can respond to that demand. Uh, but crucially, citizen pressure is not just applied at the, in the process of budget preparation, but also in monitoring the execution of the budget. Uh, there are more and more citizens groups like the Project Monitoring Partnership in Jigawa and civil society networks like the Kaduna Basic Education uh, Accountability Mechanism and CADMAM in the health sector as well, um, that have been monitoring the quality of service delivery and the implementation of publicly funded projects. So these mechanisms have provided new public spaces and processes for citizens to engage with government. The second mechanism uh, relates to improved public financial management. So we observed a connection between more effective policy planning and budget processes, improved budget performance and increased spending in the health and education sectors. And our research suggests that there is a causal mechanism connecting these changes. Uh, for one thing, more effective policy and plan planning processes like the state development plan and medium term sector strategies enable states to prioritize health and education. More effective budget execution actually helps them to deliver resources in an efficient and predictable manner to those sectors. We found that in states obviously with weak budget execution, it's much harder to deliver planned resources to health and education um, in a predictable way, resulting in major um, efficiency costs. And then finally, uh, the third mechanism, we did find some evidence um, that public service management reforms have contributed to improve service delivery. When we looked across the board at overall civil service reform, public service management reform, we didn't find general improvements in the states, but we did find specific examples um, of reforms concerning the recruitment and deployment of frontline workers, so health, primary healthcare workers, teachers, 
Um, and this was strongly associated with improvements uh, in service delivery. So for example, um, in Kaduna, the reforms to the recruitment of teachers um, uh, that um, I'm sure the commissioner will talk about in a moment, um, ensuring that they were actually properly qualified does appear to be one of the major factors uh, driving improved educational outcomes in, in Kaduna. So three main mechanisms. The first one around empowerment and accountability, citizens' voice um, and influence. The second around public financial management, delivering efficiency gains, cost savings, reduced wastage. And thirdly, the importance of getting human resources right to the front line of service delivery and the importance of government systems in delivering that. So that's um, in a nutshell, what we thought were the main um, causal mechanisms or contributions of, of governance reforms to those service delivery improvements. Thank you so much, Gareth. That's, that's very comprehensive and also very meaty. It helps to disaggregate different elements of governance that may matter. And I think actually on the, on the citizen involvement one, citizen voice and accountability, it's actually telling that elections are not so much the conduit, but actual participation in, in, uh, in, in processes of decision-making. So that's really um, quite interesting. I wonder if I can turn now to Mohammed and ask you, Mohammed, um, from where you sit um, in the Kaduna state government, what kinds of linkages have you seen between core governance reforms in the way that Gareth is describing and service delivery improvements? And why has this been important in, in Kaduna itself? And how has the Kaduna state government sought to uh, foster these kinds of reforms, both on the governance side and on the delivery side of things in a connected way? The floor is yours. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, um, Alina, and thank you, Gareth, for that very um, good overview and presentation. I think that Kaduna is probably one of the major beneficiaries of 20 years of FCTO work, um, because we came in, our current government came in in 2015, and what we met was a huge database of work that had been carried out by uh, successor programs from the Spark program and other programs, Savi, that had existed before the government um, uh, came in. And one thing that was striking was that there was a lot actually to pick up and implement within those programs and those reports that hadn't yet been actually uh, done and which showed clearly how we could, from a governance standpoint, also move quickly towards implementing uh, proper service delivery and getting the impact uh, that our citizens um, wanted. A quick example, um, in 2014, a year before we were elected into government, um, the uh, then government had spent a million dollars on the entire health sector for 2014. But in that same year, when we went through the books, we saw that they'd spent over $6 million on hosting guests at the government um, mansion, basically. Um, so there was clearly a mismatch uh, between what service delivery was asking for and what sort of government expenditure uh, was doing. And this was one of the core things that we wanted to, to reach out to adjust. And when we looked deeper, uh, first of all, at the budget, we realized that for over a decade, uh, the budget had the same core, uh, the same skeleton, uh, which year over year, politicians and civil servants would just simply take the items of the previous year, uh, add a certain percentage across the board, literally draw down a percentage on the Excel sheet and then present it as a new budget, right? And so because of this, some items had 
remained um, within the state budget uh, even beyond their uh, importance or their value, right? And there was really no thinking that was going on regarding uh, how exactly those items were not just a list of, um, uh, to see them beyond a list of contracts that were to be awarded, but also to see how they impacted on the various sectors of the state. So one of the major things that we did um, starting in 2015 uh, with support from um, David at the time, uh, I believe it was Parallel Arc, uh, the ending of Spark, was to initiate what um, was a zero-based budget. Basically, we started from a fresh template and asked everyone to justify why things need to be on the budget, which was a revolutionary process uh, because over the last, uh, as I mentioned, two decades, they've just simply been used to taking the Excel sheet from the last budget and then just adding a percentage and then moving it. So getting people to justify why things had to be on the budget was significantly revolutionary and um, disruptive to the entire process. And so by doing that, we were able to take out significant amounts of government, uh, quote unquote, expenditure, and then move them to the service delivery end. And so from spending for a million dollars a year on, um, on, on, uh, on health sector, uh, while you're spending $6 million in government house feeding uh, alone and gift items, we were able to achieve 26% uh, of the budget on education, right? 15% uh, of the budget on healthcare. And you can see that clearly in the 2016 budget. And that's why you see the trend um, in the gathers um, graph going upwards right from 2016. It was because of this very, very huge uh, and monumental shift that um, the proper budgeting had allowed us to make. Uh, another major, but rather small addition was when we joined the, the ministry was called the Ministry of Economic Planning, right? And there was a huge debate in, in cabinet regarding what the function of the ministry actually was and why many state governments still opt for uh, calling it um, the Ministry of Budget and Planning. We um, changed the nomenclature to need to come before the budget, right? Now it's a small change, but it's actually fundamental in the way that people think. Because if you take it as a Ministry of Budget and Planning, the way you talk about is bringing all the expenditure without having a plan. And what we knew that we needed to do was to put together a proper policymaking uh, framework to ensure that what we were actually uh, spending resources on was what we plan to achieve in healthcare in education and infrastructure and water resources. And so the shift was made to call it the planning and budget uh, commission. And so with that came a plethora of plans, um, starting with our estate development plan in 2016, which really laid out uh, as a core where we were and where we wanted to, to, to go to uh, in terms of both the economic and social sectors, right? And, and we were very clear that um, the budget wasn't merely a financial distribution of what money goes to which department within it, but what it, it represents the core of our economic framework. It represents the level of taxation that we're aiming at, the level of debt we're aiming at, but much more importantly, it represents how we want to allocate resources to key social services like healthcare and education, and how we want to eliminate uh, issues around inequality, how we want to fight HIV AIDS. All these guiding principles lead us to that. And so when we worked, for example, with um, DFID to craft our first 
uh, medium-term expenditure framework, it was very clear when we did the analysis of budgets uh, in the years past that these core issues of governance um, were more or less thought to have zero or no link uh, to service delivery issues. And what we tried to do with the MTF was really to bring these abstract economic concepts, um, abstract governance concepts, right to the doorstep of how do you actually improve the lot of the people that are living in our rural areas. How can we ensure that we use the budget to ensure that our um, uh, women are no longer dying from childbirth, for example? How do we increase net enrollment rates? And with that, those core changes came a significant number of policy reforms that really hit at the core of what um, the state was facing as a, as a challenge. We were sure that if we were able uh, really to affect and influence uh, the core of these processes that then we would be able to see the outcomes. And so we started from the policy planning, right? And then moved on very quickly to sector implementation plans where the healthcare sector and education had, had very, very detailed targets with the results that we were able to then link these outcomes, these targets to then say, okay, how much money do we actually need to be able to influence the number of women that die in childbirth? How, many, how, many, how much money do we need actually to influence the number of people that, re, that visit the hospital because of malaria, right? How are we able to really use these resources, not just as a list of contracts of this road or that road, or this hospital or that hospital, but as an instrument of change. And I believe that that's been at the core of the um, uh, business of governance that we've been doing over the last uh, six or seven years. But at a point we were able to quickly realize that if we were not able to monitor how these resources move from public coffers all the way down to the last mile, right? That we would be leaking a lot of resources in the process. And so we started a, a monitoring evaluation program called the Eyes and Ears. Uh, we were able to talk about this even at an international forum like the World Bank of Spring Meetings in 2018, where we really started it off as a government program with nine officials going out to ensure that they could track government resources. But after six months of implementing, we were very certain that nine people could not um, track the amount of resources that we were sending out uh, to affect the lives of millions of people. And after significant debate, what we came out with was the best people that could help us to monitor the amount of resources that we're spending were the citizens of Kaduna themselves. And so we empowered the citizens of Kaduna with a monitoring app, which you could download on your phone and head out and help government to actually monitor. And whatever you do ends up on a dashboard with the government. Now, what that really did was to cement the social contract between our people on the ground and us at the top to ensure that what we're actually working for, they can track the resources. And that led us to joining the Open Government Partnership, for example, as one of the first subnational governments in the world to ever to, to do that. And Kaduna was accepted at the level of, of national governments because one of the things that we were implementing was really, really critical. Now, what we've learned over the last six, seven years is that you cannot um, divorce or remove the importance of governance um, in the way that you, you, you've learned some service delivery. You can try, uh, and, I, and I've gone through the paper and I've seen that there are various methods, either you start off from the bottom up or the top down, and I feel like what we've tried to do is a mix of, um, 
of both, right? But one of the major issues that we've also come across is the importance of the parliament in terms of cementing that political commitment. Because as much as the budget is thought to be a, a technical document, it is the biggest political document that we have because where you're spending your resources is a political statement of what you want to, uh, to do. And politicians feel um, very strongly around how you structure your resources. And so we've really found that the partnership with the parliament, the legislature, in terms of the budget process, right from the beginning, getting them to understand why we are pegging the budget at a level that is more credible than we would through the MTF and all of that um, is, is critical. And Mohammed, thank you so much for your remarks and, and for um, delving into it so, so deeply. I wanted to... Um, um, ask a couple of follow-up questions, but I will just let park them for both Gareth and, and yourself to think about. For Gareth, I had a question about how citizens are organized um, so that their voices can actually be heard. Is it mostly through these invited spaces of interaction with, with, with the state or are there other um, uh, ways for them to organize and exercise influence and where does power lie here? Um, in terms of whose voices are heard. And for Mohammed, I think you were getting into it actually in your remarks, but it would be really nice to hear a little bit your reflections on how a program like Pearl has helped to, sh to shift or improve, let's say, the quality of the interactions between state and society so that they can actually work collectively because this was one of the main objectives of the program. So let me just park there for now so that we can um, continue to move swiftly. And now I want to move from theory to practice, let's say, or um, really focusing on development programs um, and what is needed to be done there to ensure that development programs focus both on governance reforms um, and then uh, on improvements in health and education um, in ways that are mutually reinforcing. So Gareth, that's a question for you. Um, from the work that you have been doing with, with Pearl um, and beyond, what is needed to ensure this, this sort of greater synergy building between governance uh, reforms or support to governance reforms and um, improvements in health and education? And just briefly to say that the paper that you wrote with Helen Derbyshire on this very question of, of synergies between sector and governance programs should now be online as well. So maybe Paula can share the link. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Alina. Um, so yes, this is the paper that, uh, that you mentioned that we've also been working on uh, in parallel to the flagship report, looking at um, how effective collaboration has been between governance and sector programs and assessment of the evidence on, on what works. Um, I think the main point I'd like to make in response to your question um, is that both from a theoretical and a practical perspective, I think it's only possible to deliver improvements in health and education by working across the whole of the, um, of the service delivery chain. Um, working just on the core governance systems uh, upstream is not enough uh, if you're not actually engaged in schools and health centres. Um, but working in the schools and health centres isn't enough if you can't address uh, some of the core governance problems that uh, um, we've also been <coughs> discussing. We need to do both. And we need to think about connections in the chain um, and supporting the causal mechanisms that bring about change, uh, whether this be through improved public financial management, empowerment and accountability, or human resource management. Um, 
there are lots of ways that uh, donors, governments, and uh, other development actors can work together to make these questions, to make these connections. Um, and we looked at this uh, in this research study. Um, when we looked at the connection between governance and sector programs, um, what we found is that in principle, um, governance and sector programs perform mutually supportive and complementary roles at different points uh, in the governance service delivery chain. But we found it's actually quite difficult to do this uh, collaboration in practice. We did find some really um, positive examples of collaboration. Um, for example, another case study that I just put up here on the um, education reforms in Kaduna uh, looked at the collaboration between the FCDO Pearl program working on core governance and the teacher development program working on teacher training and skills. The two programs were able to work together uh, very effectively to support the state's reform efforts in teacher recruitment and deployment policy. But there were also lots of examples of programs working at cross purposes and um, undermining each other because they had different policy and funding approaches. So while governance programs have been um, strongly focused on making resources available to health and education through the state budget, uh, sector programs have often resorted to direct funding of health infrastructure and services. Less so now, I would say, but there has been an issue in the past of these programs have bypassed the governance systems that uh, the government systems that the core governance programs were set up to, to strengthen. So we found that overall the collaboration between sector and governance programs was quite um, uh, patchy. Um, it, it, it had occurred over, in all states over time, but the, the pattern was variable and patchy. Um, collaboration being limited to particular cases rather than the, the result of a systematic approach to tie these programs together. Um, so plenty of room for improvement. And I think um, research like this has helped to give us some lessons about what works and what doesn't work in terms of uh, getting collaboration between programs, which hopefully can be used in the next round of health and education and governance programs that are being established in, in northern Nigeria. Um, one of the key lessons is that uh, coordination between governance and sector programs works best um, where the state um, takes the lead in aligning programs in support of a single strategy. And I expect uh, the, the commissioner will want to talk about this um, in, uh, in the case of the Kaduna example in a moment. Just perhaps a, a final um, idea to, to leave you with. Um, you can work at this really in two directions. You can focus on core governance program programming um, tackling the bottlenecks in public financial management, empowerment and accountability, and hope that that feeds down into service delivery improvements. That's tended to be uh, the traditional approach. But um, there is another way of, of looking at it, um, which is to actually start with a concrete and focused service delivery problem uh, and using this as an entry point to reveal some of the weaknesses and core governance that may be contributing to that problem uh, and then moving up the chain to core governance. Um, this is what FCDO calls the uh, issue-based approach. And in our report, we have some examples of where this has worked well in practice. So one of them was in Jigawa, where I think it was the SLGP program 
uh, identified the problem of uh, uh, erratic water supply in, in hospitals as a key service delivery problem. This then um, led them to identify procurement systems in the health sector as being a critical bottleneck that was causing, uh, causing the problems in water supply and eventually uh, to questions around overall budget allocations to the health sector. So that's just one example of how you can work back up the service delivery chain. In my mind, you can do it, you can do it both ways and we probably should be doing both at the same time. But the really important point I'd like to emphasize is seeing this governance and service delivery chain uh, in an integrated way uh, and working um, <coughs> across the chain uh, to link up uh, these various approaches. Thank you, Gareth. You, you mentioned a few things that are of interest both to Mohammed and to Joe, whom, whom I want to bring in uh, swiftly as well. But briefly to uh, Mohammed, uh, one of the questions um, that has been raised here is around how um, a state like Aduna can work with the different development partners um, that are on board um, in a way that coordinates their support and, and ensures that it's aligned with the priorities that you may have um, at the state level in terms of governance and service delivery. Can you tell us a little bit about how, how you have sought to get that coordination and alignment going? Um, and if you can uh, keep your remarks to about three minutes, that would be fantastic. Thank you. Well, thanks a lot, Adina. I think that um, uh, certainly that has been an issue in the past uh, where we had um, several donors with different funding um, sources and different um, objectives uh, working in the same sector. The health sector, for example, is a darling of donor partners. Uh, so we have a plethora of partners working right from the top all the way to the mid um, level where they're focusing on various initiatives uh, with many having different objectives as to how to solve the same problem, right? And so what happens is that you uh, are facing the health sector, for example, where um, half of the staff are out most of the week attending one donor training or the other or one donor conference or the other, and nobody's around to actually deliver guidance to the health sector, right? Um, or where you have uh, donors uh, funding um, multiple initiatives, which the state is also uh, funding, and so it leaves room for corruption, right? And so these are issues that we face for at least the first year and a half of our government, um, until we uh, had a sit down, first of all, informally with uh, some of the major partners of the various sectors, and then uh, decided to coordinate um, more uh, closely with them. Ultimately, this ended up after, I think, two years with, uh, with an agreement, um, a written agreement from all the major funders, uh, which we call the DCF, uh, the Development Corporation uh, Framework, where everyone actually signed up to support the state in its um, focus and its priorities. Because we had to uh, then put our foot down to say, look, we uh, called everybody together, put together the state development plan together, which had all the sector priorities as well. So make your inputs to the state plan we will take it, review it, and then agree on the way forward. And once we're able to develop the state development plan, then we were able to then shop it to our partners and say, look, this is our focus, right? And this is what we want support on. And we got large agreement from uh, DFID, from USAID, from the World Bank, from the IMF, from all of the partners that we work with, and they signed up to um, our development cooperation framework. Now that has set out sort of the reporting lines and the coordination lines where uh, we no longer have this 
confusing state of everybody trying to do everything at the same time. The, DC, the first DCF expired in 2019, and we've just now signed a mutual accountability framework with FCDO, which we are hoping would also do the same thing, and we're trying to get the other partners um, to sign on to. That has been really, really important in terms of saving resources, not only for us, but I think for the development partners as well as ensuring uh, that we're actually pursuing development uh, on the same track. Fantastic, Mohammed. That's extremely helpful and, and very wise, actually. So thank you so much for sharing that. Um, may I now turn to Joe? Uh, Joe, I think Gareth shared uh, some really important insights about how governance and sector programs can work together and also how they can, um, in fact, uh, work um, not necessarily at opposite ends of one another, but not necessarily reinforce the synergies that are needed. Uh, having listened to the previous presentations and the discussions, what are the top three things from the research on the connections between governance reform and service delivery improvements that you think are most useful for SEDO to think about um, in terms of future programming? Thank you. Grant, thanks very much, Alina, and thanks for bringing me into this. Um, I'm probably going to talk at a relatively high level here. Um, I had like a little role in, at the beginning of this project, but I uh, haven't been that well connected since then. Um, I think one of the really positive things which comes out of this report it demonstrates some of the potential that there is from linking governance and sectoral programs. Um, and the examples which are there, particularly around using kind of this issue-based approach, kind of using specific entry points in terms of service delivery um, to address some of these issues and to bring together some of our, you know, some of the colleagues who are working on governance and who are working on education issues, um, you know, demonstrates some really positive examples there of, of how that can be grown. Um, I think as an organization, one of the things we do face challenges with is precisely tying up some of these questions and expertise around governance and around sectors um, and ensuring kind of that we we, tie, we take a broader view that it's not a case of, um, you know, funding specific service delivery, but it is about how do we work with our counterparts uh, in national and local governments to resolve issues rather than creating parallel systems. Um, but there's often a challenge there, the incentives that our advisors have and the different ways that there are funding, many of the things that Gareth has already pointed out, really, you know, create difficulties in how we draw those together. So there's a definite value from this research in terms of illustrating kind of how, how we can begin to bridge some of those gaps. Um, but I also think a really important thing to focus on here as well, you know, has been the role of state governments and, you know, bringing donors together and having a coordinated plan. Um, and, and one of the things I think we need to think about from FCDO's side is how exactly we can, you know, positively engage with those processes and not be just bringing in kind of our priorities um, from outside and kind of fostering that instead. Um, a second point really is around, you know, some of the, the limitations and how we sort of set expectations for ourselves around this. Um, there's a lot of positive examples and, and indicators that Gareth has put forward, um, very strong progress in some areas, less so in others, um, and thinking about basically what is viable and, and you know, for, for this work to do is very important. Um, and thinking about as well about kind of differences across these different contexts as well. Um, this time programming will you know, help to address issues in some areas where there are kind of political incentives which are aligned for, for that to happen, you know, where you have those particular moments where this can occur. Um, but equally, there are some areas which are potentially too sensitive politically for rapid changes. You need to just be you know, well aware of what can shift and when. Um, and this then draws on kind of onto my third point here, which is the really the importance of taking kind of the long view um, I mean, it's quite striking that we're talking about 20 years of um, engagement by DFID here, that you have um, examples of programs which are very well embedded in the context that they're working in, 
that are connected to state governments and you know understand very well um, the, the challenges that exist around kind of the um, around accountability of the different demands that the politicians and, and civil servants and you know the general public as well face in those contexts um, and that the you know there we've, it's been in place for kind of extended period of time and it, it's been the opportunity then that as uh, particular political moments have occurred that you know, then they have people who are in place who can work with governments um, and with administrations which have an interest in reform uh, and it's one of the striking things that Mohammed said as well um, when he was speaking is that you know when they arrived in government there were these programs already in place a lot of background work which had been done um, and things that could be picked up and used um, I think one of the challenges that we face um, you know as an organization is that's not the case in a lot of places where we work or at least not to kind of the same level um, and here I think to be kind of maybe very sort of FCDO internal um, I mean, the merger between DIFT and the Foreign Office does kind of create both opportunities and challenges here. Uh, there's a tendency, I think, in the past for DIFID to be very, very programmatic, um, very kind of stop-start, and, you know, merging with the Foreign Office does create the potential for taking a longer and more kind of political view um, of development and, and how exactly we, you know, support reform efforts in different contexts. Um, equally alongside that, though, there's obviously a range of challenges around currently around budgets, the uncertainty that that creates, and the barriers that puts in, in the way of uh, this type of long-term and consistent engagement and programming. Um, so I think that's, you know, again, something for us to take away and think about as an organization and, you know, how we adapt to our changing circumstances as well. Uh, but no, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you so much, Joe, also for joining us, because I think you have a unique profile in terms of having both a very solid and strong governance background and now also working um, at the sector level of things. So, so your perspective is, is, is very welcome. Um, we are now going to have um, some time, finally, to get to the uh, questions and comments that we have gotten from, from the audience. And, and for those of you who have other questions, please feel free to type away. I had parked a couple of questions for Gareth and for Mohammed, um, and I will let them um, uh, uh, ponder on those while I um, share some of the questions and, and comments that are coming from our chat. So there's, uh, we have someone from APT who is saying, um, on the increased budget allocation for health and education, it appears that there are multiple possible causal, causal routes for the favorable shift in intersectoral allocation. And he cites uh, some of the many mechanisms that were talked about here, citizens voice, voice and accountability, sector budget uh, justification and lobbying, state assembly scrutiny, PFM budget process reforms, and also pressure from DFID with, a, with an exclamation point, which I think is, is a really important thing to keep in mind as well, um, either formal, um, formally or informally. And, and so he is wondering, the, uh, the person asking this question is, is wondering, which of these five um, uh, mechanisms do you consider to be the most influential in changing sector allocations um, and or well and to be more sustainable so which one is most influential and which might be most sustainable and why um, another question that we got which actually relates to some of the discussion we had in the first webinar that we held is around the role of the legislature in the oversight of the budget implementation is the legislature also empowered to perform one of their key constitutional functions um, in this realm? And if so, why? And I think this is a point that Mohammed uh, raised um, um, in his remarks, but also I remember Lorelin saying that in terms of governance improvements um, as supported by FCDO's um, investment in Nigeria, 
uh, reforms got the least traction at the parliamentary level. So it, it might be interesting to hear a little bit about that. Um, there's another question here around uh, the fact that we're talking in Nigeria of a context that is uh, democratic, however challenging. Um, and the question is whether approaches would need to be different in terms of promoting um, service delivery if uh, one is engaging in, in contexts that are more authoritarian or more fragile or more kleptocratic. Uh, so do we need to keep a regime type and intention, I suppose, into account? Um, and then somebody um, is asking a question um, that I want to keep to the end. So I won't uh, reveal it here because uh, uh, I want to keep the suspense. Then we have um, Kathy Bain, who has been herself involved in, in the LEAP program, who's asking Gareth, uh, given that, given what the commissioner has presented regarding the importance of planning around objectives and then aligning resources to meet them, why do we not see any improvement in PSM mechanisms? The graph suggests only efficiency gains in PFM, but no real changes in planning and policy making. Um, so she's asking if this is inconsistent with what uh, the commissioner has shared. And uh, Kathy also has a question for both Gareth and, and um, Mohammed. The report suggests that context is critical. Jigawa seems to have outperformed Kaduna across the board. This might be surprising to some given Kaduna's recent leadership and disruptive reforms approach. What contextual factors in Jigawa have enabled this superior performance? I think that's a lot. Uh, for all of you. So I will, and also I think that's the end of the questions except the one that I'm leaving for the end. So let me perhaps try this um, um, in a different order um, than how we started. So Joe, may I um, ask you to, to respond any questions that, that tickle your fancy and then I can move on to, um, to Mohammed and then finish with Gareth. Thanks, Lynn. I think probably the the only one I'm really in a position to answer is maybe just a little bit of that regime type. Um, maybe the, kind of the ways are very across those. Um, I think in terms of kind of thinking about, um, you know, addressing governance uh, alongside sectoral issues, that's something which would kind of apply across a whole range of different environments, but you would just, you know, you would use very different approaches, I think. Um, obviously in spaces which are ungoverned and, uh, and where there's kind of more limited political authority. Um, there's also quite just a question of kind of who is doing the provision in practice as well. Uh, and there's many environments where, you know, we would want to be engaging with kind of um, with non-state providers. Um, but I think the in many ways, kind of the, the core of what we want to do here remains across those as well as the challenge of how exactly you do coordinate quite a disparate range of actors, but how you're you are building up um, national systems alongside that as well. I think that's probably a much more complicated question than I'm in a position to answer here. Um, so we definitely would need to vary. I mean, and also alongside that as well, there's a question of kind of, in, particularly in terms of authoritarian regimes, um, who we are able to and kind of comfortable in, with engaging with um, in those contexts. Um, yeah, obviously kind of puts limitations there. Um, but I think it is interesting kind of what's, the potential that's set out here and kind of you know elsewhere in the literature as well around creating spaces for positive engagement between citizens and regimes particularly around service delivery and whether or not that begins to create space for kind of active engagement and for a kind of a different type of citizens friendly and uh, and relationship between kind of state and population um so yeah there's a lot to think about on that one as well 
Excellent, Joe. Thank you so much. There's another question for you from Kathy coming in briefly um, around donors struggling to incentive in, in incentivize coordinated sector and governance programs. Local coordination by governments is obviously one way um, around this, but in the present context in FCDO with a lot of the cuts in aid and the need to do more with less, is there um, hope that FCDO can more actively encourage collaboration upstream and systematically? So if you can respond to that in a minute, I can then shift gears. Thank you. So I definitely think that, well, I hope that with our own resources being more limited kind of in the immediate future, um, there's sort of an even stronger need for collaboration across different donors um, and making sure that we're, we're coordinating properly there. Um, I think there's obviously a challenge then in how much support we can provide in, in specific contexts, but I think it really reinforces precisely that need to be engaging and to be thinking particularly about, you know, how can we use the resources we have to support reform efforts um, rather than necessarily thinking about kind of uh, direct funding of services or the establishment of, of separate areas of service delivery. Um, it's, yeah, so I think that's probably the main answer. Thank you so much, um, Joe. Um, Mohammed, let me turn to you. And I know that I read uh, several different questions in one go, but let me just perhaps zero in on the ones where I think it would be really great to hear from you. One was uh, the question that Kathy Bain posed around the conundrum between Jigawa and Kaduna in terms of reforms, especially given uh, the, the disruptive leadership uh, for reform in Kaduna. And the other is the question that was posed by the APT colleague on the different mechanisms that there might be uh, to try to influence um, budget allocations for health and education, and which of those might be more or less sustainable and more or less influential based on your experience, um, obviously, where you sit um, in the state government. Thank you. Oh, I think we lost Mohammed. Um, so sorry. So maybe Gareth, um, <laughs> um, Gareth, maybe I can turn to you. Um, there was, there were also many questions. This one was one of them around uh, which mechanisms may matter more or less. Um, and I think you probably also can address the question of how approaches approaches need to change uh, when you have a radically different context that is less open, let's say, or, or less yeah. democratic. Um, and also um, there was that question that Kathy raised around uh, some contradictions um, or inconsistencies between what you were saying um, and what the, uh, the commissioner was sharing. And I do hope that we can get uh, the commissioner back online. I think the team is working on it. Oh, he's there. Uh, Gareth, why don't we turn to you and then I'll, I'll go, um, I'll pose the questions to Mohammed. Thank you. Thanks, uh, thanks Alina. And thanks to everyone for the really interesting and uh, Challenging questions. Um, I'll try and respond to um, at least some of them. Uh, I mean, first of all, on Paul Smithson's, um, yeah, five possible causal routes for the shift in uh, resources towards health and education. I think um, I think all of those have been relevant, um, but the mix has varied um, between states, um, and there are actually uh, perhaps some some other ones. I think a a key feature in Nigeria is often the, the vision, commitment and drive of the governor himself. Um, I, yeah, I say himself because all governors are <coughs> men at the moment. Um, but uh, so in Kaduna, uh, the, um, when El Rafai was campaigning for election in, in 2015, uh, education was actually high on the, 
on the manifesto as, a, as an issue that really needed addressing. So I think, um, yeah, we've seen a similar situation in, in Yobe where uh, there was a <laughs> state of emergency declared in the, in the health sector previously. So I think the kind of messaging coming out from governors and how voters respond to that is also another um, important mechanism. Um, Alina, um, in your, your question about how does civil society actually engage to influence budgets? Yeah, I think we can, we can unpack that because there are several different mechanisms that we, we've seen. Um, at the grassroots level, mechanisms like community charters of demand generate kind of demands for very local projects often connected with service delivery. Uh, but we've also seen the growth of the media uh, increasingly critical and focused on service delivery and policy issues through phone-in programs, putting uh, commissioners on the spot. That's been a major trend. Uh, and then perhaps more organized civil society engaging at the, the state level in budget processes in a more formal way. I think over, over this 20 years, one of the biggest changes has really been around the increasing organization and vitality of, of civil society and how it, uh, um, how it engages in policy processes. So I think definitely that mechanism has been critical in shifting resources towards uh, service delivery sectors. Um, State House of Assembly scrutiny. Well, we did find that the State House of Assembly was, was very active in the stage of budget preparation. So um, making its views known on how to allocate resources, less effective in terms of monitoring how that uh, how resources were actually spent. But uh, in terms of sending signals, I think that's also been positive in, in pushing budgets in this direction. Um, yep, pressure from uh, FCDO as well, but I would say that um, in a country like Nigeria, no donor is particularly uh, influential. Um, most of this is coming from domestic political processes, but I think, yeah, the whole international environment um, and yeah, pushes the push for <coughs> increased resources for health and education, even through the Abuja Declaration itself, have been uh, have been important drivers as well. Mm. So um, yeah, multiple mechanisms. They've worked in different ways. Um, yeah, really important, uh, interesting question about um, the uh, what th this is. This applies to a democratic context. Um, what would this look like in an authoritarian context? Should donors just go straight to service delivery and not worry about governance? Um, well, we only did this research in Nigeria, but from some other experiences I've had, um, I would suggest that even in authoritarian, some authoritarian settings, there are still useful things you can do around governance uh, in the service delivery sectors. Um, Gareth, let me... The, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> I may have to stop you right there because we want to have some time to enable Mohammed to join the conversation and I don't want to wait too okay. long. Uh, Miani, I'm sorry to, to interrupt you because I know that this is a huge topic, but let me um, um, ask uh, uh, Mohammed, who has just been able to rejoin us. Um, from the ch uh, questions we have received in the chat, there was that question about 
the the challenge between Kaduna and or the disjuncture between Kaduna and Jigawa in terms of progress related to reform, uh, given uh, the leadership, the kind of leadership that you have in, in Kaduna and what may account for the fact that Jigawa seems to have done best overall in terms of reform. Um, this question that uh, Gareth has also addressed around which mechanisms might be a most influential, but also be most sustainable in terms of ensuring um, uh, greater budget allocations for health and education. And from the perspective of, of an authority figure in, 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 a, in a state like Aduna, you know, how, how would you uh, think of these um, uh, in terms of which are more important? Uh, somebody was also asking about the disjuncture between uh, having policy on paper and then the implementation. And I'll leave it at that, at that because there's a lot. Um, so uh, Commissioner, the floor is yours and you have a few minutes before we bring um, our friend Miani to the floor. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, Alina. I apologize, I lost connection. So I might have missed um, a couple of the um, points that had been raised. But just very quickly on the Jiga versus Kaduna, I think that was um, very interesting on the research and we'd love to delve deeper into it. But I would say that even in 2015, when we came into government, Jigawa was already a model for implementing governance reforms, right? We, Kaduna and Jigawa had the same programs, um, Savi, Spark, and all of that. But the difference was that Jigawa had actually picked those documents up and been implementing them for a decade before uh, Kaduna came on board, right? So we came on board in 2015 and picked up all the documents and started implementing them. So I believe that time lag might have accounted for this quality that you're seeing the differences in the PSM. And it's just because the government at the time didn't take it up. Uh, and so we, we met a lot of rich information that just hadn't been implemented. So I believe that that time lag, but I, I'd love to engage with Gareth and the team um, to see if there are any things that also um, uh, might, might be the reason for this. Uh, on, on the PFM versus PSM uh, question, I believe that, um, you know, usually when you start with the reforms around PFM, uh, it takes a bit of, of, of a, there's a time lag for service delivery impacts actually, um, for you to be able to actually see, for example, the changes in maternal mortality um, or child, childhood um, infant mortality and, and all of those things. So I believe that may account for it, but I, I think in the various options that have been given as to what is the main reason that may account for for example, sectoral allocations, we have, I believe that the justifications from the sectors are probably more sustainable. And actually the most sustainable thing for us has been having a coherent plan that lays out a three-year budget framework, for example, in how you're going to actually be allocating resources. I would put much, much less emphasis on FCDO or pressure or anything like that. As Gareth has said, I don't think Nigeria as a country really responds to a lot of that. I think if we're able to put out a coherent frame and the reason why over the next three, four years, we need to put the money in these places. I think that would um, be much more um, uh, of a much, much more reason uh, to, to get those things. Uh, very quickly on the House of Assembly oversight, because I glimpsed at that before I left, um, is that the House of Assembly still does have that constitutional responsibility of oversight and nobody is touching that. Even if citizens join, I feel like it's just more eyes on the same pie and it just al allows us to be able to track um, resources more. There've been a number of other questions in the uh, comments in the Q&A. 
particularly regarding the citizen development, uh, the charter that we sign as citizens in terms of the state budgeting. I believe that has brought a lot of oversight and a good of, lot of good practice in terms of how we actually including citizens in monitoring uh, from uh, right from the budgets all the way to the service delivery and sort of completing uh, that chain. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, uh, Mohammed. And without further ado, I, I wanted to bring Miani in, uh, who, uh, as I said before, um, has been the national team leader uh, for, for LEAP and has been involved in LEAP um, in a variety of different roles across time and space. So he has a very good platform to sort of take a wider perspective or a broader view, perhaps. And Miani, I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what you see as the most important challenges that Nigeria confronts today in relation to governance and service delivery and how the work that SCDO has supported in Nigeria has been important or meaningful in this respect. What has been achieved and what remains to be done, especially in the context of the one year anniversary of, of the NZARS protest uh, today and in, in the run up to the elections coming up and what kind of role is there for international development actors like FCDO in fostering needed change going forward. And of course, um, uh, since you are a wise man, you will be able to address all of these questions and solve the world's problems in eight to 10 minutes, Miami. Thank you so much. Oh, it's, it's, um, I hope you can all hear me. It's, it's always interesting when um, you, you start your comments based on a lie because someone said you're wise. Um, from then on, you know, it is, is, is wild out there. So I, I'll do my best, not because I'm wise, but because we're all learning. Uh, in terms of um, contextualizing everything that we've um, spoken about um, uh, in the past hour plus, within the context of where Nigeria is presently, and you mentioned the NSAS um, demonstration that it's like one year tomorrow and all of that. I think to take a broad look at it and try to really simplify it um, from where I sit and what's working at in the past within government and now, what's clear is that if there's one area within the Nigerian system that really has highlighted itself as very critical, is the space of accountability between citizens and state. And to what extent the citizens are able to express their voices. Um, why I think that is the most critical, it's because that is the platform for any kind of conversation that would start from what the citizens consider their needs, translate that into a demand, which then rightly within a system of um, sound accountability would further on translate into government's priorities. So moving from citizens want A, B, C, D, E to someone in politics is campaigning and promising that to they now move from um, political promises to implementation of, of priorities that are now policy. And I, I mentioned that for two reasons. One, um, as um, we've heard during the time that we've been speaking and from Gary's presentation and Mohammed's interjections, what's unique about what we're talking about here is that um, governance reform has not only fed at the entry point into what happens on service delivery priorities, but has led to service delivery. And to the extent that in, in, in any country and even more so a developing country like Nigeria, any kind of conversation around governance, any way you would hold the government accountable that does not immediately tie to service delivery on the ground 
tends to lose traction with citizens after a while. So it's, it's an unsophisticated space which provides a lot of opportunity to ensure that by providing um, keeping your eye on the priority sectors like education and health, the way Kaduna has done, there's a direct correlation from what the citizens say they need, how government has been held accountable, and what the research has shown has indeed, from a governance reform point of view, fed into, contributed to, and in some cases, just outrightly led to specific improvement in service delivery. So in terms of where we're in Nigeria, I would say that that is a critical thing um, to note. Um, as we get closer and closer to elections, I think that challenge is not going to go less. It's going to be more pronounced, which is great because um, Nigeria's social contract has always remained kind of weak because the Nigerian state doesn't generate most of its income or run its machinery based on tax from citizens, rather from returns from um, the sale of oil. And so the space for tax being a tool of, of accountability has remained weak for a very long time in Nigeria, but we always get this opportunity around election periods where there's a ground swell of very clear demands, which then sets the tone. Um, in terms of also just learning generally, but also looking at challenges, and um, because of the time, I kind of will move between two challenges within the Nigerian system, but also within um, the Pearl Program itself, and what maybe the whole donor community can take, um, take from that. The, the first is just there is challenge with capacity to deliver and deliver well within government. And um, it took um, Pearl quite a while to get to like the, rule, the, the real nerve points as to how to address that in specific places. But because by design thinking, Pearl had been set up with three pillars and one was focused on building government's capacity to, to deliver in a manner that is very, very deliberate and um, upfront. In all of the locations that Pearl has been, um, we, what you will see is a correlation between the kind of capacity we've seen displayed by partners in government and um, success in delivery, and maybe even if we have the, the data and time, a measurable impact, which um, has not been done so much um, right now. So that's something that is, will remain a challenge for a while, but it's, it's good that we are learning from Pearl um, what to do about it. Uh, a great challenge, which is both a challenge and, and an opportunity, is a program that doesn't stand alone, but brings three pillars within it that look at various aspects of governance reform, so that those working within the pillar that was that is ARG, and those working within the pillar that is ECP and LIP, um, responsible for for learning, where are not speak what operating in silos fed into each other in a manner that made it much clearer to see that the areas and the sectors, like in this case, education and health, that the Pearl program was focusing on um, providing support to partners like Kaduna State to deliver well, was very easy to do because it was not at any point perceived as the donor's agenda. There was a whole issue identification process that involved the voice of citizen. So what we've seen in that, and Mohammed spoke even a little more, um, a little deeper about it earlier, is a departure from what has been pretty much a bit more of the tradition where government would sit in a room, 
um, establish its priorities, run its destiny, and then at some point have this one big workshop that is aired on TV and bring civil society people that are their friends and say, we have had civil society engagement, now we're going on. But the fact that there was an issue identification that brought citizens' voices from the get-go and then throughout the process because of the correlation between ARC and ECP and us working in silos, what we've seen is a lot more clarity around providing support by donor programs that is not only from the government and the folks sitting in government house, but clearly also the felt needs and demands of, of um, the citizens because that was taken into cognizance from the beginning, not halfway or, or, or not in, in, uh, at the very end. Um, I think that um, maybe the last comment generally around that, looking a bit more about what to expect you know, for, for FCDO, for other organizations. Um, two things I think provide us a great opportunity right now. One is because Pearl has been, um, or is a learning program um, with the necessary design components for adaptation, and it's gone through very painful five, six years in learning itself how to learn. And it's where it is now. There is a lot to learn from that moving forward. Um, um, there was a question, I believe, from Kathy, um, where she highlighted if there's any learning around the fact that FCDO is saying, let's get more bang for our buck, and we're tightening the belt. And I think that a program like Pearl actually provides quite that opportunity where you can see the correlation between the various aspects of what government is doing. And so in making sure that you're working in lockstep and each is feeding off the other or each is um, reinforcing the other, we'll be able to generally work in a direction that um, would get donors um, more for their money in terms of impact. Um, the fact that issues are identified with citizens means also that when they go to town eventually and get feedback from citizens, because um, you know, partners like governments and what have you, most likely will tell you you're doing a fantastic job because you're giving them some money and some technical support, but that there is more feedback from citizens as beneficiaries as well, um, should provide an opportunity for FCDO with a tighter budget. So for me, the learning from this is, it's been a tough learning process for, um, for an adaptive program that Pearl has been. But um, for FCDO and other um, donor programs moving more into the direction to get close to um, elections, um, this is an opportunity not to abandon it because it's had very painful teasing process, but that this synergy would actually provide what is beginning to look more and more, I wouldn't say formula, but at least a principled approach that can be explored um, deeper. And the, the, the last one is we're leading up to an elections very soon. And um, for once, FCDU and other donor programs have a good opportunity to have programs that would work closer in terms of the rhythm of the politics and the setting up of priorities. And so whilst we're looking at all that has been learned in specific locations in sectors, there's an election coming up and these same sectors, health, um, education, I dare say, if you add agriculture, security, and maybe infrastructure would be the main things that will be talked about. And so there's this whole body of learning from the locations that Pearl has worked in that can benefit Pearl or uh, uh, FCD and other donor 
agencies as they seek to engage with the country after 2023's um, election and enable them to move forward in that same direction to, to reinforce. So that, those like, uh, are my just broad um, thinking. Like I said, I laid out the caveat. Um, Alina, Alina lied when she called people white. And um, so um, I hope it's helpful and any clarification we can provide, even if it's not here, just reach out and, and we'll either point you to the document or just have further conversations. Uh, thanks a lot, Alina. Thank you so much, Vianney. That was very, um, also very uh, uh, coherent and, 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 and thought through, especially because I, I know that I asked you very difficult uh, questions. So thank you very much for your, for your insights, especially in the run-up to the elections and what you have said about the role of health and education there and the lessons and opportunities within FCDO. I want to go back to one question that Joan, Joanna Russell from the University of Nottingham has posed uh, uh, on the chat, which we also wanted to go back to, and which actually, um, um, is something that a lot of you have already touched upon, but I wanted to ask um, if there is one thing that, that we could ask SCDO or, or another international development actor to do differently to improve governance for service delivery in education or in health, what would that be? And let me start with Mohammed. All of you have one minute, so it has to be a very quick uh, sort of tool at that, but Mohammed, one minute, what is your one ask from the FA, from FCDO to do differently? Thank you. Well, thank you, Alina. I mean, I feel like the work that's been done by FCDO in the past is monumental and it's fantastic, especially when you have willing governments like ours that are ready to pick it up. What I'm a bit sad about is that over the last year or two years, I believe, we've seen significant decline in activities from the partners um, that FCDO supports. Um, and I believe that this might be um, policy issues from the top, but I feel like we are almost at the crux of what the, all the investments of the last two decades um, have really sought to do. I feel like we're at a level where the absorptive capacity of our country, um, uh, Nigeria and the states, is getting to a level where everybody's understanding and everybody's trending towards these issues. So my appeal um, is that this is not the time to pull back. We're hoping that we will get much more partnership and stronger investment from FCDO and not to leave it just when it's at the cost of really uh, something huge. That's the last answer. That is a great note to, um, to end on, Mohammed. Thank you very much for that. Joe, I know you, you pointed um, out um, a few things based on where you sit within FCDO. So if there's one thing that you could sort of think about doing differently starting on Monday morning, as Simon Maxwell used to say, what would it be? So I thought I was going to take some next few minutes to note from people and others have wisdom for me on this. Um, I think what can we do differently on Monday morning? Um, I think, yeah, the challenge for us is basically taking, particularly on service issues, this broad view. Um, yeah thinking about kind of the governance aspects of it, really approaching us as a system, but doing that through this kind of lens of specific issues, kind of where can we support reform efforts um, that are ongoing? Um, sorry, it's not a very good answer there, but um, yeah. Sorry, Joy, I know it's a bit harder for you because of, of the hat that you wear, but thank you very much for your comments. Gareth, maybe can I ask you for one minute? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I can only really speak about education in, Nigeria uh, and how, how I've seen it, but I, I think my main point would be 
um, for FCDO to really get to grips with the governance of the of the education sector. Um, we understand a bit, but I was quite surprised in this research um, that there were big gaps in uh, understanding and engagement. And partly this is to do with the problem that uh, Mohammed has just <coughs> uh, emphasized that there hasn't been a major education program for the last three years or so. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, when we looked at basic questions about how much money goes to primary education versus secondary or tertiary, very hard to get data. Um, where the funding flows go through from the federal level through the state to local government, which has a, a key role in funding uh, and delivering education. Um, big gaps in our understanding and engagement. So I think there's, uh, and I'd hope with the new program plane, which is just starting, that we can really uh, get to engage um, in a more <coughs> informed way, because I think as we've been really stressing throughout this session, understanding the governance um, dimensions of, of, of education is, is absolutely critical. Um, and if we can't engage at that level, um, all of the important things we do in schools, like school-based management committees or uh, work on inclusive education um, won't be as fruitful as they could be. So I, I, yeah, my main plea would be really go to the, the governance end of the, of the chain there. If I'm allowed one more, I think it's on the human resources um, that we really found that it's not just a question of money in, in the education sector. The quality of teachers has been absolutely critical. It's been a big issue in Nigeria over the last decade. Um, big steps in Kaduna to actually improve the, the quality of teachers and make sure that they're properly qualified. So, yeah, there was a question from Cathy pointing out that we knew less on public service management. I completely agree. The governance focus has been too much on public financial management. We need to focus more on the human resources because um, that's absolutely critical to the quality of the service. It's not just money. Thank you very much, Gareth. Um, Miani, um, one, one thought on one thing, on one thing to ask uh, FCDO. Thank you. Well, um... I probably was thinking to say what Mohammed said, which is um, 20 years has been a lot of investment and you're the cost of a lot of consolidation. Um, so whatever FCU needs to do, um, don't pull back on support. And then um, maybe an additional thought is whatever comes out of the 2023 elections, there will be a new government. And um, how, if it's the ruling party or another party, at least at the federal level, and most of the states, there'll be new governments. Um, there is a 20-year study that has just been carried out now, which consolidates all of the support. That is a fantastic place to launch engagement with new governments at the federal, as well as the location, so that even if there is a change in ideology and the persons running things, FCDO would position itself pretty much as a partner on institutional memory and enable the new governments to build on the 20 years of work of the governments in the country, as well as FCDO's work um, as well. So um, be very deliberate and mindful on building on that after the elections. 
Thank you very much, Miani. And I want to thank all of you um, uh, who joined the panel today uh, as speakers for all of your very insightful comments um, and reflections and, and the, all the uh, insights that you that you share with us. I also want to, to thank our audience for being very engaged and, and um, asking a lot of questions that I'm afraid we were not able to answer or address in full, but it's always good to have um, that set of questions out there in case we can delve more deeply into them um, um, with more time um, another time. Um, and I also want to say um, this is the, 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 the close of uh, the three-part webinar series that LEAP has launched to be able to share the findings and insights emerging from the research that we carried out with our uh, Pearl colleagues. And so it's a, it's a moment for me really to thank um, all of our colleagues and collaborators within Pearl itself, um, including in ARC and ECP, uh, with, uh, within FCDO, of course, and especially within LEAP, where we had a really great team, uh, lots of, uh, of engagement and commitment from a lot of different people, including from ODI, from the policy practice, and, and researchers and, and experts and practitioners who came and went um, um, as the hour of need came. Um, and we hopefully leave you with a very rich set of, of studies and reports that are all now, uh, those that are publicly available should now be captured in the Pearl website, as well as um, linked to, to the ODI website um, as relevant. And it has been quite the journey. And we are hoping that we will do uh, a few blogs reflecting on these uh, webinar series um, and the different events that we have had. Uh, so look out uh, for those as well. But for, for now, we will leave you um, and, and hopefully the, the Pearl journey will continue and the learning will not stop as our colleague um, um, Miani and also uh, Mohamed Gareth and Joe have expressed. So thank you so much for, for all of you uh, for, for joining and um, uh, yeah, the fun stuff's here, I suppose, for deep, <laughs> at least for now. Take care. Thank you.